Welcome to class. We are delighted that each of you are here. When I attend a class, I always like to know what the outcome is. Have you ever begun a, reading a book by looking at the last chapter first? And you have felt that if the last chapter wasn't worth reading, that probably the conclusions that led up to the last chapter weren't very much worth reading at all? Always I like to know, where is the class head? And let me share with you what my goal is in the next hour and 15 minutes. We want to look at three very definite, specific ways to enhance your Christian life. Biblical methods in which your spiritual life can be renewed. So my goal in class is that when you leave class today, there'll be something that you can grasp onto that'll make a difference in your spiritual life. Somebody said, you don't have to find too many million dollar bills blowing down the street to be a millionaire. You don't have to find too many million dollar bills blowing down the street to be a millionaire. So I am hoping that there'll be something that you can take out of this that you're gonna say, that is gonna make a difference for me. So that's one object of the class looking at what genuine spirituality is all about. We're gonna look at how to have an effective prayer life. Why is it that oftentimes our prayer life is not as effective? Why is it at times that our mind wanders so much in prayer and how can we have a more effective prayer life? We're gonna raise the question, how can our Bible study be more meaningful? And then how can I open the Bible with a sense of excitement and anticipation for what God is gonna do? And then how can I have a more satisfying witness? We're going to look at that. In the context of that, we're going to look at this whole idea of contemplative spirituality, discovering our roots or embracing the East. How many of you heard the program last evening? It was a two-hour program. How many of you heard it? How, okay, a few of you. How many of you did not fall asleep before it was over? No. Um, <laughs> We went late last night, some, you know, 9 to 11, but um, that will be a resource for you. Probably 10% of the class heard that. It is, will be repeated on 3ABN, I'm sure. We had a panel discussion. So I'm going to talk a little bit about contemplative spirituality. I'm going to start there, actually, and jump back and forth from there into methods of how to have a meaningful spiritual life. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to come. It's a Friday afternoon. Sabbath is coming. We just anticipate Sabbath blessing. We know that every time Sabbath comes, you have something special for us, that Jesus worked more miracles on the Sabbath than any other day of the week. And Sabbath is a day of miracles. So here at ASI, we anticipate what you're going to do. But right now, this Friday afternoon, this preparation day, not only a physical preparation day, but a spiritual preparation day. Prepare our hearts and minds for a deepening experience with you. In Christ's name, amen. I was lecturing on the deeper spiritual life on the west coast of the United States. And after the meeting, we had a question and answer period. And one man raised his hand and actually stood up in the back and he said to me, Pastor Finley, what do you think? of contemplative spirituality, spiritual formation and meditation. Now, I could tell from the way he asked the question what he thought. You know, there are times that people ask you questions 
and you immediately know that their mind is already made up when they ask you the question. They are not asking because they want to have an answer for themselves. They are asking because they want to find out what you think. Well, that question itself, and sometimes the Lord uses questions, that question itself sent me on a personal journey of study into the whole idea of the deeper spiritual life. And how do you have this deeper spiritual life? And are there dangers as you enter into the deeper spiritual life in the whole concept of contemplative prayer? And we're going to define that and centering prayer and spiritual formation. So it's one thing to reject the counterfeit. It's another thing to accept the true. You know, for every genuine, there is a counterfeit. And for every counterfeit, there is a genuine. And so the Lord is leading his church today into that deeper spiritual life. The devil wants to counterfeit that deeper spiritual life for honest, sincere, genuine people to get us off track. Now, let's begin by defining what is Christian meditation and then raise the question, How can we in our busy lives enter into true biblical meditation, biblical prayer, etc.? What is Christian meditation? We need to take a look, too, as what is contemplative and centering prayer, and how does that differ from Christian meditation? And we need to take a look at, is the concept of spiritual formation biblical? Because if you're talking about the deeper spiritual life, you're talking really about being formed in the image of God. You're talking about God through his Holy Spirit, enabling you to grow, grow closer to Christ every day, reflect the image of Jesus. And so is the concept of spiritual formation biblical? We'll we'll look at that a little later. Christian meditation. Throughout scripture, meditation is always active and never passive. It always has an object. What do we mean by that? In Eastern mysticism, people attempt to empty their mind to get to this core within their being because they have this fundamental philosophy that deep within the human being, there's an immortal part of them that they can get in touch with. For many, that immortal part of them is the spark of God, and so they're trying to get in touch with the God within. In Christian meditation, we are not looking within ourselves, but we're looking out of ourselves. We're looking out of ourselves in an active way to God's word, God's works, and God's ways. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to put that down. God's word, God's works, and God's ways. Christian meditation focuses on God's word, the objective reality of God's word. It looks at God's works, the majesty of God in nature. Christian meditation looks at God's ways, how he's led me in the past and how he's leading me in my life today. Let me share with you something that happened recently in my own life in Christian meditation and how Christian meditation can be a tremendous blessing to your own personal spiritual life. About two years ago, at the General Conference, I was taking a look at the results of a survey about devotional life in North America among Seventh-day Adventists. And I discovered in that survey that about 50%, 51% of Seventh-day Adventists in North America, according to the survey, had no devotional life at all. They had no 
They weren't reading the Bible. They weren't studying. They weren't praying. Nothing significantly meaningful at all. And that really concerned me. So I began raising the question, what can we do as a church? Is there anything we can do to encourage our church back toward the Bible, back toward reading Scripture? It was then that we came up with something called um, Revived by His Word. And Revived by His Word was based on the premise that if people read the Bible prayerfully and thoughtfully, their lives are going to be changed. And I began to dream and share with other General Conference leaders this thought. What if we could get a million Seventh-day Adventists reading the Bible together? What if that happened? What if we get two million Adventists reading the Bible together? And what if we start with Genesis chapter 1, and we only ask them to read one chapter a day? I think there are 1,176 chapters in the Bible. So we're not asking to read three chapters a day. What if we read one chapter a day together? And in the process of reading that chapter, encourage people to read that chapter and meditate upon it. And um, we started with the division presidents in April at what we call Spring Council in the Adventist Church um, about a year ago. And it was actually this last spring. And we read Genesis 1 together. Every one of the division presidents read different verses in Genesis 1. And we're reading from now to the general conference session in San Antonio in 2015. And what God is doing is really remarkable. There is a web page called Revived by His Word. Do any of you know about that webpage? Let's see your hand if you know about it. Okay. You're reading. You're participating. Wonderful. Do you know that we have about 10,000 plus responses to that now? And when you're reading, say, we're in Leviticus, or about Leviticus 30 some odd. And when you're in Leviticus, for example, you know that 10,000 other people are reading Leviticus. And you know that a half a million other people are right in that chapter, whatever the numbers are. I don't have the exact numbers. And then you can go on the web page and you can see their comments on the chapter and their insights. But anyway, I was, we had just come into Leviticus. And I have read Leviticus, you know, again and again and again. And so I had my Bible open one morning. And I was saying, now, Lord, you teach me from your word. So Christian meditation is always focused on the word of God. Christian meditation always is focused on God's word. What was the second one? God's works and God's ways. So I'm meditating in Leviticus. You, you come to Leviticus, you're reading about all these offerings in Leviticus, and you're saying, man, I can't wait to get through this so I can get to something more interesting. But I thought, you know, Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that do what? Testify, testify of who? Of me. So every passage in the scripture is to testify of Jesus. So as I'm reading, I read about the offerings. So you start in Leviticus 1. I looked at verse 4. It talks about the, uh, the ram. And um, you look at Leviticus 1 downward, and it, it, it talks about the bull, actually. Verse 5, he'll kill a bull. And I begin to think, man, a bull is really expensive. What about poor people who didn't have any bulls? Then I go down, and I read verse 10. Now he's talking about sheep and goats. I say, well, that's a little cheaper. Then I go down and read verse 14. He talks about birds. That's a lot cheaper. And pigeons. That's a lot cheaper. I continue to read. And it talks about flour. And all of a sudden, it hits me. The bull. I'm meditating on this, praying. The bull. The, the sheep. The goats. The, the pigeon. The flour. Whatever your social status... 
Whatever your income, the blood of Christ provides salvation for you. People could come, if they didn't have a bull, they could come with a turtle dove because the burnt offering was put on the altar every single morning till every night. And so I began to think, the different offerings in their different cost represent the reality of the fact that the blood of Christ provides salvation for us all. Then I began to look at the different classes of people that brought their offerings. There were offerings for the ruler. There were offerings for the priest. There were offerings for the common people. There were offerings for the poor. So the blood of Christ provides salvation for all humanity, and there is an offering for every human being. Nobody is excluded in God's plan. Christian meditation, as I was meditating on those sacrifices, it led me to meditate upon the cross of Christ. So what is the difference between Eastern philosophy and positive Christian meditation where you slow down to listen to God speak to you? Positive Christian meditation is always actively meditating on the Word of God. The goal of Christian meditation is to fill the mind with the Word and works of God. Meditating upon His greatness and matchless love were changed into His image. You don't want to miss 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 if you have it. See, how is character transformed? How can we have a vibrant Christian experience? How are we transformed into the image of Christ? What is the very essence of sin? Sin mars the image of Christ in humanity. Sin mars the image of Christ in humanity. Sin distorts the image of Christ in humanity. What is the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is to lead men and women to the forgiveness, grace, mercy, and power of God so the image that was lost by sin will be restored. That's the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to restore within you and me that reflection of God's image. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, and let's go back and verse, read verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Spirit of the Lord sets us free from bondage, sets us free from greed and lust and anger and bitterness. Verse 18, how does this happen? But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. As we behold the image of Christ in Scripture, the Holy Spirit reveals to us a revelation of His character, and we are changed. How does that happen? How, are, how is my mind changed when I read Scripture? What process does the Holy Spirit use to do that? God has created us with minds. We're created in the image of God. We have been given the ability to reason, to think. I was talking about the brain to a group of business people. We were lecturing about stress. And I said, we have about 14 billion brain cells. Well, after the lecture, a neurophysiologist came up to me. 
And he said, Mark, you've got old information. We've got about 100 billion brain cells. I thought, man, I know something. So the next lecture, I said, we had about 100 billion brain cells. A neurophysiologist, neurophysiologist came up to me, a teacher of neurophysiology. He said, that's old information. We got way more than 100 billion brain cells. I looked at him and smiled and said, Doc, how do you know? Did you count them? (laughs) How does God change us? You know, I love that statement that Ellen White makes in Prophets and Kings. It is a law of the mind that the mind gradually adapts itself upon those subjects that it's allowed to dwell. As you quietly open the Bible, not to prepare a Bible study to prove somebody else wrong, and if you're a preacher, not to prepare a sermon, but as you quietly open the Bible to let God speak to you, And as you're reading scripture prayerfully, Christian meditation quietly goes through the Bible, not in a speed reading program to see how much you can accomplish, but to listen to the voice of God and say, God, impress upon my mind the things of eternity. So when I read about Christ touching the eyes of the blind and they're opened, I bow my head and pray and say, Lord, I have just read a story in the Bible about you healing a blind man. And I know that in my life, there are many blind spots. I know there are things about my personality that I don't see. I know there are things that are unclear to me. Open mine eyes and heal me spiritually. When I see, I read about the man who has been by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, and Christ comes and he touches him. You know what Bethesda means? It's interesting. In the Bible, Beth always means sign of or house of. So you've got Beth-lehem. Beth is sign of, lehem is bread. So Jesus, the bread of life, was born in the house of the baker. You got it? Beth-seda. Beth is sign of or house of. Seda is fish. So Jesus called the disciples to be fishers of men at the house of fish or the fisherman's village. Beth-esda. Esda means mercy. Beth means house of or sign of mercy. So Jesus came to the most despicable place where the sick and the outcasts and the ridiculed were. He came to a place that there was no hope, and he walked into the midst of that place, and he found the man that was suffering worst in that place, and he touched him with his grace, and that man sensed that he was in the presence of mercy that day, the house of mercy. When I think about that man by the pool of Bethesda, I say to myself, God, you touched him, and you healed the paralysis in his body. Please heal the paralysis in my soul. Now, I hope you see something coming through today. When you combine effectual prayer and meaningful Bible study as one major event in your devotional life, it is life transforming. Prayer and Bible study are meant to happen together. Often on your knees, when you open the Bible and the Word of God, you read a few passages and pray, and then allow God to talk to you through His Word. So how are we changed? As I see what Christ is doing in the New Testament, by beholding Him, we become changed. We see His love and His grace, and the Holy Spirit takes the things of eternity and stamps them upon our minds. In Christian meditation, Jesus is the object of our thoughts. 
He's the supreme focus of our attention, looking unto Jesus, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the author and finisher of our faith. Isaiah 45, 22 says, look unto me and be saved. So this is a million miles from Eastern philosophy. It is Jesus is the object of our thoughts. The Bible is the basis of our faith. We stop and pause and meditate on him and his goodness. Now, we recognize that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and that in us there is no good thing. See, this is the difference between Christianity and Eastern mysticism. In Eastern mysticism, the idea is that there is some good within me and that there's this God within me that I need to get in touch with. In biblical Christianity, I recognize that my nature is fallen. And because I have a fallen nature, I find no solace in looking to that nature. As George Vandeman used to say to me, and used to say to audiences, when I look at myself, I see no possibility to be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I see no possibility to be lost. And so our focus is not upon ourselves. One of the big dangers of Eastern mysticism, when you get people looking within themselves, the devil can bring up all kind of thoughts of disappointment, discouragement, guilt, shame, condemnation, and people can end up in a greater depression. Or the other thing the devil can do is he can give you a counterfeit Christian experience without lifestyle change. And you get this counterfeit Christian experience without lifestyle change, and you may feel like you have somewhat peace and and, uh, somewhat uh, warmth inside, but it is really a counterfeit experience. Our hope is in him, in Christ. Our mind is fixed upon him. This is Christian meditation. Our attention is focused upon him. And when meditating upon him, we're transformed into his likeness. If you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and one of the things that it is possible to miss in Scripture very often are those verbs of Scripture that indicate choice on the part of the believer. Colossians 3 is a very good example. Let me give you two other examples when you're turning to Colossians 3. You don't need to turn to these. We're turning to Colossians 3, but I'll give you two other examples of the principle. Remember what the Bible says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. Let this mind, in other words, allow this mind, choose this mind to be in you. Remember when Romans 12.1 says, present your body a living sacrifice. In other words, you present, you choose to do that. So, God has given to us the power of choice as we choose to fix our mind on things of eternity, meditate upon the scriptures, allow God to change the current of our thinking. That trans- we are transformed into his image. Here we go, Colossians. You're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. If then you were raised with Christ, in other words, if you're born again, if you have a new experience in Jesus, if you're raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. Notice seek is a very active word. You choose the things that are above. Seek those things that are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. What kind of language is that? Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. What kind of language is that? You've got it. Who said it? It's sanctuary language, isn't it? So, are we meditating, trying to discover the God within us, or are we focused on Jesus' high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary? Eastern mysticism is looking at the wrong temple. It looks at the temple of the soul. It looks within the human heart where there is only deceit, where there is only a fallen human nature. Christian meditation 
causes us to look to the sanctuary, may I suggest to you that the message of the sanctuary that Christ has entrusted to Seventh-day Adventists is a precious message fully understood that leads us to meaningful Christian growth and the transformation of our characters. Because what do we meditate upon? Our weakness? No, his strength. What do we meditate upon? The darkness of our own hearts? No, the light of his glory. We're focusing on Jesus, our high priest. We recognize that he is there in the sanctuary above, that his forgiveness, grace, and mercy is ours. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Verse 2. What's the first word in verse 2? Does anybody have it? Set. Set what? Your mind. What does it mean, set? Fix. What's another word for fix? Focus. What's another? You give me fix and focus. What's another one? Meditate. Okay? Fix your mind. Focus your mind. Concentrate your mind on things within your soul. What? Things where? Within your soul? Seek the light within you on things what? Above. And not on things on earth. Why? For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is Christian meditation? It is slowing down enough so that the things of time no longer dominate the thinking process and allowing the things of eternity to transform your life and character. Now, in addition to meditating on God's word... The psalmist David speaks of of meditating on God's word, his law, his testimonies, and his works. We want to take a look at that because one of my goals in our class today is to send you out of here more inspired to allow your life to slow down and to gain the spiritual strength that comes from Christian meditation on God's word, his works, his ways. So let's pause in Psalm 119. Let's go back, if you have your Bible, to Psalm 119. Have you ever met a person in your life, maybe it's a member in your church, maybe it's a speaker that you've heard at camp meeting, maybe it is somebody you've listened to on tape, And you have said, I don't know what that person has, but they have something that I want. I felt that way when I traveled both to the former Soviet Union and China. In the days of communism, I often would travel to the former Soviet Union. And after communism fell, particularly, we were in Eastern Europe before communism fell, but then Poland, Hungary, Yugoslavia, then after we were traveling to Russia a great deal, And I met men and women who had been imprisoned for their faith. And there was a quality of faith that they had that was really dynamic. It was genuine. It was authentic. It wasn't make-believe. It was a relationship with God that was deep and was intimate. Recently, my wife and I were in Hong Kong, And we invited to that meeting 30 pastors from mainland China. They came. And I was out in a little field with them out after the meeting because I wanted to meet privately with them. We had a large meeting there of a few hundred people, but we had 30 pastors from mainland China. And I wanted to talk to them a little bit about their own spiritual life 
And as we went around that circle, I just sensed that there was a depth of spiritual experience. Then I met with my friend Robert Wong. Let me tell you a little bit about Robert. Robert Wong left a youth meeting about, must have been 40 years ago now, and he is in his late 60s, early 70s. We have become deeply, just wonderful friends. Robert left a youth meeting when he was 23. As he came out of the youth meeting, he was arrested by the communist police and taken to prison. He was placed in a cell four feet wide and eight feet long with three other people. These were three older men. There was in the back of the cell a little bowl for, a little pail for to do your urinal in. There was an old light bulb up there, and these three men were totally bald. Their heads were shaved. When he came into the cell, his, he had a full head of hair, and they said to him, young man, let's tell you a little bit about what happens here. It's a good sign that they did not shave your head. Because when they shave your head, it means you're going to be here many years. And they told him their stories of being there five years, eight years, ten years, and so forth. They were just emaciated skin and bones. A month went by, Robert's hair was not, head was not shaved. Two months went by, his head was not shaved. It was coming toward Christmas, and the commander of the prison and the jail called Robert Wong in to talk to him. And the other three men said, it's a good sign. They know you're a Christian. It's December 25th. They're going to let you go free. When he walked in, the commander had a barber with him and a barber's chair. And he said, sit there. And on Christmas Day, they shaved his head. Totally bald. He knew he was going to be there for years. He told me later, he said, as I got up from that chair and I began to walk, I looked back at the chair and I saw all my hair on the floor. I knew that I was going to be here for years in this desolate, dark, dingy dungeon of a place. And he said, as I looked at my hair, tears streamed down my face, not because I was thinking I'd be separated from my family for years, but I remembered it was Christmas Day. And I said, Jesus, I have nothing to give you today except my hair. So Lord, that's my gift to you today. And I perfectly trust you, whatever happens to my life here. In that cell, he had little time for his devotions. He was taken from there and put in solitary confinement for a year, locked in the darkness with a little light. He said during that time, it was as if God touched him in that cell. But what he longed for more than ever, anything else was a Bible, more than anything else. At the end of his solitary confinement, he was allowed to write 100 Chinese characters. That's like 30 words or less to his family once a month. Once a month. Now, incidentally, he was engaged to be married before he went in prison. And I think he was there like 27 years, and his bride-to-be waited, and they got married when he got out. I mean, that's love. I mean, that's, that's not no cheap invitation that we see in Hollywood. I mean, that's love. And so Robert told me, he said, one day he heard a call out into the prison courtyard. And Tim, you remember the exact number of the hymn. What was it, 118, 114? What was the hymn number? 615. Oh, 615? Okay. So somebody called out prisoner number 615, and he remembered right away. It just hit his brain. 
hymn number 615 in the Chinese hymnal? That's give me the Bible. So he could write 100 characters a day. So he wrote to his mother and he said, Mama, I just, you know, um, would love to give a special gift to prisoner 615 or something like that. She said, what's he talking about, prisoner 615? And all of a sudden, she remembered, that's give me the Bible. He's asking for a Bible. He wants that Bible. The prisoners didn't have adequate soap. And so the loved ones of the prisoners, relatives, would give them soap. She would make bars of soap about this long, this high. She hollowed out a bar of soap, put a little tiny New Testament in it, and put it in a plastic bag sent him into the prison, that bar of soap, with many other things. Nobody examined it. And she said, I've got your gift. Give the bar of soap to prisoner 615. He knew that she knew. When everybody was out of the room, you know, by this time he was in a cell by himself. At first he was in with those four, then solitary confinement, then after that he was by a cell by himself. He, he cut open it, and he saw the Bible. And he told me, he said, Pastor Mark, I spent hours reading the Bible, hours meditating upon Scripture, hours thinking about the greatness and goodness of God, and it transformed his life. It is life-transforming to take a pause in our lives in the hectic pace that we have and listen to God speak to us. Now, the psalmist... Let's go back, though, because we're going to look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 97. We're looking at what the Bible says about positive meditation, Psalm 119, verse 97. Here it is. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. So David is meditating. When he says the law, it's broad. He's talking about really the first five books of the Bible. Notice as the books of the law, the, the very teachings of God. You look over at verse 105. Your word is the lamp to my feet, a light to my path. So here David is saying, I'm meditating on the very word of God. I like Psalm 119, verse 15, too, because this is a little different twist in Psalm 119, verse 15, that talks about Christian meditation. But again, it's always out of ourselves. Psalm 119, verse 15 says... I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Notice here's one text where meditation and contemplation are both used. What is the meditation upon? The precepts of God. What are the precepts of God? The very principles of God's word. His ways. What is he talking about? I'll meditate upon your what? Ways. In other words, I'll look back over my life. I'll see how you've led me. I'll look at the providences of God. I'll never forget those things. I'll never forget the way you've answered my prayer. You know, I think it's incredibly beneficial to spiritual life at times to sit down and say, you know what, I'd like to review the last six months and see how God has answered my prayers. You know, sometime I like to get out away from it all. Where my wife and I live, there are 17 miles of trails. Walking on those trails, you think back, God, you've been so good to me, better than I deserve. You led me this way and you led me that way. When I'm looking at God's word, my heart is inspired. When I'm looking at God's works and creation, I say, God, look, if you can make the sun rise and the sun set, if you can make the tides come in and out, if you can plant, if you can create a world this beautiful, I know that heaven's going to be a great place and I want to be there. Don't you? 
So what is Christian meditation? We're meditating on God's word. We're meditating on God's works, the way he works in nature. We're meditating on God's ways, according to Psalm 119. Christian meditation focuses our thoughts on the grandeur, the greatness of God. It lifts us from what is around us and within us to what's above us. Often what is within me is discouraging. Often what is around me is discouraging. If you are a pastor or a church leader, you can see oftentimes that there's so many problems and so many difficulties that can just weigh you down and discourage you, right? Or you look sometimes at our own families. There are challenges that can be discouraging. You look at what on your work, there can be challenges that are discouraging. So what is the benefit of Christian meditation in prayer, in Bible study? It gets your thoughts off what is going on within you and around you to what's going on above you. So Christian meditation focuses our thoughts on the grandeur, the greatness of God. It lifts us from what is around us and within us to what's above us, and we have peace for our soul. Now, Ellen White uses the term meditate and meditation 569 times. I was just amazed when I began to look at how Ellen White used meditate and meditation. Conflict and Courage, page 28. You're going to want to take this one down. The infinite, unfathomable love of God through Christ became the subject of his meditation day and night. That's Enoch. And with all the fervor of his soul, he sought to reveal that love to the people among whom he dwelt. Enoch, the one who is a model and example for the Seventh-day Adventist Church of being translated to heaven without dying, spent time in meditation. What did he meditate on? The infinite, unfathomable love of Christ was the subject of his meditation. Councils on Diets and Foods, page 89. We must be constantly meditating upon the what, everybody? The what? Word. Eating it, digesting it, and by practice, assimilating it so that it's taken into the life current. Is there a difference between simply reading the Word and meditating on it and applying it to your heart? Is it possible to read the Word and not have any benefit from what you're reading? Can you read the Word and have not... Well, what does the Bible say? Hebrews 4, verse 2. Take your Bible, please. You've got it. Hebrews 4, verse 2. Is it possible to read the word and not be benefited? Here's what it says. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Did these people hear the word? But did the word profit them? Why not? Look, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. So you can read the word of God, but unless you meditate upon it, unless, notice the words of Ellen White. It says we must be constantly What's the word here? Constantly meditating upon what? The word, eating it. Not simply reading it, but taking it into our heart, our mind, our soul, letting the same spirit that through the word of God created the world recreate us. We eat it. We digest it. We then put it into practice. We assimilate it so that it's taken into the life current. So it becomes part of our very life. The significant factor in both the Bible and Ellen White's counsel is that meditation is always rooted in God's word, his works, and his ways. Isaiah 30, verse 15. Let's read it together. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Now, there are two words that are linked together that are quite fascinating. 
quietness and confidence. Very often it is difficult to be quiet. I remember when I first came to the General Conference, they said to me, Mark, we got to get you into the technological age. We are going to get you an iPhone. I was so incredibly excited to get my iPhone until I woke up this morning and I had 28 emails that I had to answer. They're right here. I have 15 or so messages that come over the messaging system. I have all these phone calls. I used to be able to go on preaching assignments before the iPhone and run and hide. Now every place I go, and they say, we are going to get you a four-band iPhone so wherever you are in the world, we can contact you. Oh, God, have mercy on the brethren. (laughs) It is hard wherever you are today to find quietness. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. May I be so bold to say to you that without quiet moments with God in which we spend time meditating upon his word, seeking him through prayer, contemplating his goodness and his greatness and his majesty, that our spiritual experience will be superficial and it will be hollow and a sham and hypocritical. It's only as we allow God to do something in our lives through that quietness that our confidence comes. I like Ellen White's statement, and I think of all the statements on spiritual life, this is one of my favorite. When every other voice is hushed, and in quietness we wait before him, the silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. He bids us be still and know that I am God. This is the effectual preparation for all labor for God. Amidst the hurrying throng, I just see this and I say, that's me. Amidst the hurrying throng and the strain of life's intense activities, he who is thus refreshed will be surrounded with an atmosphere of light and peace. He will receive a new endowment of physical and mental strength. Isn't this a promise? What a promise! When you're rushed, when you're hurried, when life gives you a strain, as your soul is refreshed in prayer and Bible study and contemplation and meditation of the grandeur and greatness of God, you're surrounded with an atmosphere of light and peace. You receive a new endowment of physical and mental strength. There's a new energy that flows into your life. His life will breathe out a fragrance and will reveal a divine power that will reach hearts. Ministry of Healing, page 58. Don't miss that one. Contemplating Jesus. What do we contemplate? Now, Ellen White uses the word contemplation 580 times. She uses meditation about 569 times. So, look, the Bible is God's voice speaking to us just as surely as if we could hear it with our own ears. Wow. I wish I could hear Jesus speak to me. You can in the Bible. If we realize this with what all we would open God's word, in what earnestness we would search his precepts. Here's a principle that I think is going to help somebody here today. When you read the Bible, before you begin to read, pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I'm coming to your word. This is your voice speaking to me. I'm coming with excitement. I'm coming with a sense that you're going to talk to me today, and I believe that you are. Lord, guide me as I read your word. 
coming with that sense that God is going to speak to us, an offering, that prayer of faith that we'll hear his voice. The reading and contemplation of the scriptures, notice the word contemplation, would be regarded as an audience with the infinite one. We better go back and look at that. You don't want to miss it. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us just as surely as if we could hear it with our ears. Now, the next word. What's the word here? What's this word? If. What's if mean? If means what? Certainly, definitely, absolutely. If means what? It's a conditional word. If. Conditional. We realize this. We realize what? That the Bible is God's voice speaking to us just like we could hear it with our ears, with what awe we would open God's word, with what earnestness we'd search its precepts. The reading and contemplation of Scripture would be regarded as an audience with the infinite one. Wow. That's amazing stuff, isn't it? I'll tell you, it's late Friday afternoon, and these are Adventists. They're not Pentecostals. I knew it. But isn't this amazing? I've been preaching it 45 years, and I still get excited with it. I think, man, I'm going to open the Bible, and God is going to speak to me. This is an audience with the infinite one in the very living Word of God. In the Bible is a boundless field is open for the imagination. The student will come from the contemplation of its grand themes, from association with its lofty imagery, more pure and elevated in thought and feeling than if he had spent the time reading any work of mere human origin, to say nothing of those of a trifling character. I spend much less time reading human authors today, a lot more time reading the divine. Because I recognize that human authors may have something good to say, but the good they have to say is not life transformational. And many have a trifling character. Fixing our mind on the Bible and divine inspiration makes a big difference. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour thoughtful period, some time every day, in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point. Let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Now, what's going to happen as we meditate on Calvary? What's going to happen as we contemplate the love of God? What's going to happen as we focus on the cross? Our love for him, our confidence in him is going to be more constant. Our love for him is going to be quickened, that's made alive. We'll be more deeply imbued with his spirit. And if we are saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. So here is a call to quietness, to meditation, to contemplation. Jesus said in John 17, verse 13, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? It's knowing God knowing him through prayer, knowing him through meditation, knowing him through his, his word, his works, his ways. Now, neither Ellen White nor the Bible writers speak of an aimless, mindless contemplation in which the mind is in some sort of neutral, trance-like state of oneness with God. We need to be incredibly aware of the fact that the devil has a counterfeit form of meditation. And what I'm talking to you about today is a million times away from that. It's not a mindless, aimless meditation. Now, unfortunately, within the Christian church today, as I will show you, and in the Adventist church, there is this tendency on the part of some to lean toward an Eastern mystical form of meditation and prayer. 
Why has that taken place and why is it taking place? It's largely taking place for this reason. There are many people who are tired of formality in religion. They're tired of Laodicean complacency. They're tired of playing religious games. They want something genuine and real and authentic. They don't want to be a religious hypocrite. They don't want to go through the motions. And for them, they begin looking for for a Christian experience that is genuine. If you combine that with this thought, we are living at a time of superficiality in society in general. We're living at a time of instance. You watch television, and in 30 minutes, you go from the problem to the solution, and there is that instant. You look at iPhone, and you can get the news instantly in iPhone. You look at um, computers, and your computer, uh, if it doesn't start up in many seconds, you're frustrated. This thing's not starting. This thing's not starting. You go, ladies, to the microwave, and you put in a baked potato that used to take you 45 minutes to bake, and the thing takes seven minutes or whatever it is. I don't know how long it takes a baked potato. My wife knows that stuff. But anyway, you, you go there and you say, this thing is not going fast enough. Come on, let's go, right? So we live in a society where everything has been compressed and you want something fast. We live in a society where the cognitive thinking processes of the brain have been largely anesthetized and put to sleep by the mass media. So what the devil does in this society says, I will give you something, and that's an experience. And that experience, see, in in a society that longs for experience, the devil palms off a counterfeit religious experience that gives a sense of euphoric peace, but it doesn't give a sense of life-changing transformational power. So neither Ellen White nor the Bible speak of this kind of aimless or mindless contemplation in which the mind is in some sort of neutral, trance-like state of oneness with God. Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. In other words, you want a spiritual life? The words that I speak to you, they're going to bring spiritual life. 2 Peter 1, verse 4, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. God's promises are great. God's promises are precious. But beyond that, they're exceeding great and exceeding precious that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. How do we escape the corruption in the world through lust? How are we partakers of the divine nature? As the Holy Spirit imprints upon our minds his very word. James 1, verse 23, lay aside all filthiness. How do I do that? The overflow of wickedness. How do I do that? By receiving the meekness of the implanted word that is able to save your souls. It's one thing to read the word. It's another thing by the grace of God to have it implanted in your life. Now, the Bible writers also describe the life-changing power of contemplating God's creative works. We talked about that. Christian meditation does not seek to empty the mind. It seeks to fill it. It does not seek oneness with a mystical God within. It seeks to more deeply understand his nature and more fully reflect his character. Now, we need to understand a little bit about the enemy's tactics. It's important to understand the devices of the enemy. What is the devil going to palm off on a generation-seeking experience rather than the life-changing power of the very Word of God that transforms the mind? When we talk about centering prayer and contemplative prayer, what are we talking about? Centering prayer is a form of prayer in which the individual praying chooses a common word 
and continually repeats that to center their thoughts. So is that pretty clear to you? So in centering prayer, you choose a common word and you continue to repeat that word to center your thoughts to try to get off distractions. Now, just so it's clear, this is Eastern mysticism. This is not biblical theology at all. Now, the goal in centering prayer is a journey to the center of one's being to enter into a state of oneness with the divine presence within. Totally opposite of Christian meditation, totally opposite of biblical theology. Now, a lot of this centering prayer in contemplative spirituality came from a group in the 14th and 15th century called the Desert Fathers, and we need to look at what they taught and who they were. Here is a book called The Cloud of Unknowing, and it really has become a handbook for some in the Christian faith who are going back to these Desert Fathers to draw from Eastern mysticism Christian principles to bring into the Christian church. And I'm quoting directly from one, this anonymous 14th century author. He says, take just a little word of one syllable rather than of two. With this word, strike down every kind of thought under the cloud of forgetting. Now that should seem strange to any Bible-believing Christian. One thing that should cause us to raise a red flag is this. If the essence of being created in the image of God is the human mind, and if the devil, if if Jesus communicates with the mind, would the devil then not want us to bypass our thoughts so he can go directly to emotions to deceive us through experience? So anytime you read something like this, strike down every kind of thought under the cloud of forgetting. Centering and contemplative prayer have been taught by Roman Catholic monks in, monks in monasteries for centuries. Thomas Merton, Thomas Keating, and Basil Pennington, as well as Quaker Richard Foster, have advocated it, and they conduct retreats for thousands of Christians all across America on this contemplative spirituality. Most advocates of contemplative spirituality see real value in learning from the techniques of Eastern meditation. They often draw from the teachings and writings of medieval mystics as well as Hindu and Buddhist spiritual teachers, and I'll show you that. Basil Pennington gave a series of four guidelines in this centering and contemplative prayer, and this is what he said. He said, first, if you want to pray effectively, meditate effectively, you want to have a relationship with God, you sit comfortably with your eyes closed, relax and quiet yourself, be in love and faith to God. Well, what's wrong with that? That doesn't sound so bad. But then you go on. Choose a sacred word. Now you get more nervous here. That best supports your sincere intention to be in the Lord's presence and open to his divine action within you. See, these are the mantras of the East that have been quote-unquote Christianized to bring into the Christian church. So he said you can choose your word as Jesus, Lord, God, Savior, Abba, Divine, Shalom, Spirit, Love, And then what do you do? You repeat this word over and over and over again. Well, anybody that knows about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus says, use not what? Vain repetitions as the the heathen do. So he says, you center your thoughts by using this word. We go on. Third, let that word be gently present as your symbol of your sincere intention to be in the Lord's presence and open to his divine action 
within you. Four, whenever you become aware of anything, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, images, associations, simply return to your sacred word, your anchor. Wow. When you begin to be aware of thoughts, you've got to get rid of them, get back to your sacred word. This is what he's saying. Any kind of feelings, perceptions. In other words, you bypass the mind that is created in the image of God, enter into the center of your being to be at one with this immortal light within you, and you just have a euphoric relaxation in your presence. What does that do? Could it be a form of the devil's self-hypnosis to lead a person to a sense of euphoria rather than life-changing by the very power of God? Now, Pennington's guidelines for for entering into centering prayer are deeply influenced by a group of monks called the Desert Fathers in the Middle Ages. Who were the Desert Fathers? The Desert Fathers were a group of monks who left the larger aspect of society, went out into the deserts of Arabia, the deserts of Asia, and these deserts bordered on the Middle East, and they had a lot of contact with Buddhist monks and others who were out there. They believed that the material world was evil and that they had to separate themselves from all material world to be holy. Now, that is a fundamental flaw from the beginning. Spirituality is not gained or achieved separate from the world. Jesus said, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil in the world. So genuine biblical spirituality is between the mountain and the multitude. It's between a life of prayer and Bible study and activity. The scribes and Pharisees prayed and studied the Bible, but they crucified Jesus because they were self-centered egotists. So all authentic Christianity, which is life transformational, leads us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Look, Jesus declared that his followers were to be what? In the world, but not, say it with me, of the world. They were to be the salt of the earth. They were to be the light of the world. Followers of Christ should shine his lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So the whole concept of looking to the desert fathers for spirituality is flawed from the beginning. It's flawed because true spirituality can never be separated from active service. So that whole concept that that's where I look for genuine spirituality is fatally flawed. True genuine spirituality involves both a relationship with God and loving service to God's children. The one whom we serve went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. So what is genuine spirituality? Genuine spirituality has to do with meaningful, effective prayer. It has to do with meaningful, effective Bible study. It has to do with satisfying service. This is genuine spirituality. Daniel Coleman, not a Seventh-day Adventist, but a very perceptive, committed Christian, wrote a book called The Meditative Mind, page 53. He was analyzing this whole idea of contemplative prayer and the meditative techniques of the East, and he said, the meditation practices and rules for a living of these earliest monks bear strong similarity to those of their Hindu and Buddhist renunciate, 
brethren, several kingdoms to the east. So he saw it very clearly. He said these things are, are very close together. Now, the use of a sacred word to center one's thoughts seems strangely similar to the mantras of the east. It is. Is centering prayer Eastern mysticism in Christian garments? I want to show you something that's amazing. Jesus said, of course, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. So we have clear instruction from Jesus. Thomas Keating, Basil Pennington are two of the most significant authors that are attempting to lead the Christian church in this direction because they believe the Christian church needs a renewal. And so they believe that the way to do it is by blending techniques from the East. In a book called Finding Grace at the Gate, page 5 and 6, they make no apology at all about going to the East. Look, they say, we should not hesitate to take the fruit of the age-old wisdom of the East and capture it for Christ. Indeed, those of us who are in ministry, they're talking to ministers, should make the necessary effort to acquaint ourselves with as many as these Eastern techniques as possible. Can you see what is coming into the Christian church at large? These books are being sold by the hundreds of thousands. And unsuspecting Christians who want a deeper experience with Jesus Christ are being set up for a counterfeit experience through the evil one. And so, and they make no apology about that. The Apostle Paul did not tell, a, tell his society to go to the east. He said, Acts 4, verse 12, there, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They pointed men and women to the cross of Calvary and to Jesus Christ. Paul said openly and unabashedly, Romans 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the transforming power in the 21st century. Thomas Merton, in a book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, page 157 and 158 says, at the center of our being is a point of nothingness which is untouched by sin and by illusions, a point of pure truth. This little point is the pure glory of God in us. It is in everybody. That's pure pantheism. That's pure pantheism. This idea that, that, that you are God and God is within you. Look, contemplative prayer is not so much the absence of thoughts, he says, as the detachment from them. You want to be effective, you've got to detach yourself from your thoughts. It's the opening of the mind and heart, body and emotions, our whole being to God, the ultimate mystery beyond words, thoughts, and emotions. You know, when you analyze that, he talks about the point of nothingness. He talks about the glory of God in everybody. He talks about the God who ha within us comes... Uh, that idea that God within us comes directly from Eastern mysticism. Christians recognize that in me there is no good thing. Christians recognize that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. We recognize that there is one that hung on Calvary's cross. Our thoughts are focused upon him. Our attention is riveted upon him. Meditating upon his word, Opening our hearts to his grace, our lives are changed. Keating's expression beyond words, thoughts, and emotions calls into question the nature of genuine spirituality. Is it a mystical experience, or is it a relationship with God based on truth and fact that's life-changing? It is a relationship with God based on truth and fact. The essence of being created in the image of God is our ability to think and reason. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, what about spiritual formation? Good, bad, indifferent. 
You want to get Adventist into a hot discussion today, start talking about spiritual formation. You know what it depends on? How you define it. Is there anything wrong with the word spiritual? Is there a biblical spirituality? Is there anything wrong with the word formation? Do you and I want to be formed spiritually into the image of Christ? So there's nothing wrong with the term. But if you associate that term with contemplative prayer, if you associate it with centering prayer, if you associate it with with mysticism, there is danger. So let's take a look at it. If we define spiritual formation as being formed in the image of Christ, as we meditate upon God's word, seek him in prayer, and open our minds to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, it's biblical. But, look, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this word, but be transformed. See, it's formation by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, we read, seek the things that are above. Look, Ellen White uses the term this way. In Jesus is manifest the character of the Father, and the sight of him attracts. It softens and subdues, and ceases not to transform the character until Christ is formed within the hope of glory. That is spiritual formation. Christ is being formed within the hope of glory. The human heart that has learned to behold the character of God may become under the influence of the Holy Spirit like a sacred harp sending forth divine melody. Science of the Times, August 24, 1891. So if you're talking about spiritual formation in the context of letting the Holy Spirit form your mind as you read the Bible and being sanctified by the grace of Christ and growing in Christ, that's biblical. But when the term spiritual formation is used to describe contemplative spirituality, centering prayer, and a religious experience which is based on mystical experience, however sincere its proponents may be, it is certainly not biblical, and it will lead to a counterfeit spiritual experience in which experience will substitute for study of God's word. If by spiritual formation we mean beholding the meditative techniques of priests and monks of non-Christian religions with biblical ideas to achieve some sort of spiritual oneness with the so-called spark of divine within us, it's not biblical at all. What is Adventism's uniqueness? What's Adventism's uniqueness? Adventism uniqueness lies in our understanding of the great controversy theme between Christ and Satan. The devil rebelled against God in heaven. He said God was unfair and unjust. And God will have a group of people on earth that love him so much, whose hearts are broken by the cross of Calvary, that motivated by the love of the cross, their minds are fixed upon Jesus in his ministry in the sanctuary above. They see Christ as their dying lamb, They see Christ as their living priest. And meditating upon him, they become like him. In contrast to an ever-deepening knowledge of Christ through his word and an ever-closer relationship with him, Satan will offer a counterfeit spiritual experience, one that is based largely on experience and emotion. But God will have an end-time people who desire to be like the one they most admire. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know, we know, we know. We do not think, we do not guess, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is.
what is a genuine Christian experience? It's coming to him in prayer, taking a deep breath and stopping the rush and hurry of our lives. It's pouring our hearts out to him. It's meditating on his word, his works, his ways. It's allowing his word to transform our lives. And it's making a commitment to loving service, to witness, to sharing his goodness with others. Though that really is the triangle. It's really the trinity of Christian growth, a meaningful prayer life, an effective Bible study life, and a life of active service and witness. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, thank you so much for class this afternoon. We want to go out of here not only recognizing the dangers of counterfeit spiritual experience, but we want to go out of here with our hearts filled with the desire to have a genuine experience with you. We long to know you better. Slow us down in the rush of life's intense activities. Slow us down. Help us to listen to your voice. Speak to our hearts. Fill us with your love and grace. May we be your people as light in the world, as salt. May we reflect your image. May we share your love. May we reveal your truth to others. May we be active in witness for you. And, O Lord, when you come again, May we see you as you are. Oh, Lord, protect our church from the mystical deceptions of the devil coming from the East. May the forces of hell be beaten back. May our people enter into a genuine experience with you. Thank you so much that you hold this church in your hands. and The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It'll triumph at last. In Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.